welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten and I'm joined today in this month's edition by Professor David Waring, who's the Professor of Clinical Neurology at the UCL Institute of Neurology, Queen Square, London. And we're going to be talking about his recent paper in the JNMP, looking at the impact of cerebral amyloid angiopathy and in particular its insight into clinical practice. So David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for asking me, Elizabeth. So, first of all, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which from now on I'm going to refer to as CAA. Like, what is it exactly, and, and why in particular has it been gaining so much sort of attention over the past few years? First thing I'd like to say um, about the article is it was a real team effort, so I'd like to thank the team who authored this with me, who were members of the scientific committee of the International CAA Conference in Boston in 2016. Uh, so it was a real team effort uh, by the authors. So thank you for the question. Um, CAA is it's a really interesting disease because it was originally described as a pathological phenomenon, which is the build-up of amyloid beta in small superficial arteries within the brain. And this was uh, over 100 years ago, and it was thought to be rather a rare neuropathological curiosity at that point. But it's become really interesting in recent years because from about the 1980s onwards, it's been appreciated that moderate to severe CAA pathology in the brain seems to be strongly associated with lobar brain hemorrhages. And uh, as we know, uh, cerebral hemorrhage is a, is a very important, devastating form of stroke. So that's one, one reason it's become, uh, it's gaining more attention as it's been appreciated as a cause of brain hemorrhage. We've also been, been able to image the brain much more effectively using MRI and especially using blood sensitive sequences, which can detect tiny areas of bleeding as well as larger areas of bleeding in the brain. So it's become much easier to actually de detect amyloid angiopathy in living people and there are diagnostic criteria that have been validated based on detecting bleeds both large and small within the brain in lobar regions. And the third reason I think it's attracted attention is because we've realized that uh, it makes a contribution to Alzheimer's disease and in the Alzheimer's disease immunotherapy trials one of the main side effects was strikingly similar on the on the brain scans to to an inflammatory form of CAA and that's become very important as a factor in um, in designing these trials in Alzheimer's disease so I think there are several reasons that have all coincided and um, it's it's become a very hot topic in recent years Absolutely. to hone in on one of those reasons that you just described with regards to sort of the diagnostic ease of CAA in particular with the emergence of new biomarkers and things like that does does CAA remain a relatively difficult thing to diagnose in vivo or in, in patients so the, the one of the challenges here is that CAA remains a pathological diagnosis ultimately so that means it can occur in quite a number of different types of populations. So what I would say is that in people who've had a symptomatic cerebral hemorrhage, there are now pretty well validated diagnostic criteria known as the Boston criteria, 
which are based, on, as I said, on detecting low bar bleeds, but large and small, uh, on either blood sensitive MRI or other imaging modalities like CT scanning. So in people who've had a brain hemorrhage, if you've got a strictly low bar pattern of bleeding, this seems to be pretty sensitive and specific for amyloid angiopathy, moderately severe, at least, pathology. So I think in people with a brain hemorrhage, the criteria that, that we're, we're using in clinical practice are quite good. However, CAA, as it's a pathological diagnosis, it can also occur potentially in the, in the normal population of older people. So it occurs in about a third of elderly people. And we don't have very good di validated diagnostic biomarkers in that cohort. And in people who attend memory clinics, for example, with cognitive impairment, uh, we don't also haven't got good validation of diagnostic criteria in that setting. So I think it's, it's relatively easy to diagnose in people who've got a brain hemorrhage if you've got access to good quality MRI. Although, of course, in other countries of the world where there may not be such good access, that might be still challenging. And the, the only other thing just to mention is that we've realized CAA, the spectrum of disease by which it can present. So I've already mentioned brain hemorrhage and um, cognitive impairment, but it can also present with transient focal neurological symptoms due to small bleeds on the surface of the brain. And these, are, these can be very difficult to diagnose if you don't have a, a high index of suspicion and they can be misdiagnosed, for example, as a TIA transient ischemic attack, uh, in which case you may expose the patient to potentially harmful antithrombotic drugs. And you mentioned in the paper the relevant biomarkers or the emerging biomarkers um, for CAA across the spectrum of um, sort of potential causes or outcomes. One of them in particular that you talk about is cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and I wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about that as a potential biomarker for CAA. So I think this is a really interesting interesting question, and we we all know that CSF biomarkers in neurodegeneration and particularly Alzheimer's disease have become very useful in detecting early disease. So we see re reduced levels of amyloid beta in the in the CSF of people with Alzheimer's disease. In amyloid angiopathy, there are very good theoretical reasons to think that we would also see reduced amyloid beta in the CSF and perhaps with a different profile because the, the peptide that's deposited in the uh, vessel walls in CAA uh, has a different ratio of AB to 40, uh, which is more represented in vascular amyloid than it is in parenchymal plugs of amyloid, which contain mainly AB to 42. And indeed, if we look at the studies that have been done on CSF biomarkers in both sporadic and hereditary CAA, by and large, they, they show reduced amyloid beta 40 as well as reduced amyloid beta 42. But we should remember these studies are still relatively small and in quite an early phase of development. So they, we don't have established ranges and we don't have the diagnostic validation of these biomarkers that we have in Alzheimer's disease. So I think CSF markers in CAA look quite promising, the amyloid markers. Um, the tau markers have been less studied, seem less consistently altered. And um, I'm looking forward to us investigating other new biomarkers, perhaps of um, neurodegeneration, but also neuroinflammation.
and other phenomena that might be connected to amyloid angiopathy pathology. So the, the short answer is I think CSF uh, is an interesting uh, biomarker in CAA, but has not yet been well validated for clinical practice. So we need more research on that. I mean, you just talked about it then in terms of the pathology, I suppose. Um, but very interested when reading the paper about the relationship between CAA and then Alzheimer's disease, um, in particular on that spectrum that you mentioned and its potential link to cognitive impairment. And of course, I mean, there's amyloid involved in both illnesses. Do they arise from the same amyloid pathology? Is it merely the location of the amyloid in the blood vessels versus, you know, accumulating outside the neurons? Is that is that the only difference or sort of where's the relationship between the two? So this is um, this is also an interesting question and quite quite a challenging question. This one, because as people get older, the the chances of harboring both Alzheimer's disease pathology, so plaques and tangles, it becomes much higher as people age, and amyloid angiopathy, which is amyloid deposition in the vessels, also becomes much more common as people age. So we know that they can certainly coexist. And what's what's a very interesting question is whether they interact with one another or could even have causal effects on one another. And I don't think we fully know the answer to that. As I mentioned earlier, the amyloid deposition in CAA tends to have a higher proportion component of amyloid beta 40, which is a more soluble form of amyloid beta in comparison to parenchymal amyloid plaques in Alzheimer's disease, which contain a higher proportion of amyloid beta 42, which is less soluble form of amyloid beta. So there is a difference in the, the, uh, the species of amyloid that's deposited and also the topography of deposition. So in, in Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid is within, within the brain in plaques and in, in amyloid angiopathy, the amyloid is de deposited in superficial cortical arterioles. But as I mentioned, they frequently coexist. So in people with Alzheimer's disease, if you look pathologically at these patients, over 90% will have some form of amyloid angiopathy pathology as well as the Alzheimer's disease. And if we look at patients with amyloid angiopathy, it's less well studied, but a high proportion of those are likely to harbor Alzheimer's pathology. And the other thing to mention at this point is that in amyloid angiopathy, there is a, a range of uh, distribution of amyloid. So in some patients, the vascular amyloid seems to be more focused on the surface of the brain in the leptomeningeal small arteries with, with a very bleeding prone phenotype. Whereas in some patients with amyloid angiopathy, there is more of a, an Alzheimer-like uh, deposition of amyloid beta, perhaps within the capillaries within the brain uh, itself. And these might be partly determined by the APOE genotype. So there's some evidence that if, if you have APOE2 alleles, this is more associated with leptomeningeal amyloid in CAA, whereas APOE4 is more associated with a capillary level form of amyloid in CAA. So it's quite a complicated relationship. I think there is now data that CAA pathology is associated independently with cognitive impairment, even when you control for the presence of Alzheimer's pathology in older people. 
but in terms of how the CAA and the Alzheimer's uh, interact with one another, I think that that remains um, an important topic for research. Absolutely. I suppose it speaks to the importance of, as you've discussed in your paper and, and just then, about sort of in vivo biomarkers and not, you know, the post-mortem or the pathological findings where it's difficult to sort of tease out that cause and effect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So to go back a bit to um, sort of a more clinical question about the sort of treatment of patients with CAA, your paper talks about it, and I wondered if you could talk to us about it on the podcast with regards to what are the major treatment concerns when you are faced with a patient with CAA? So I suppose the first one is patients want to know what is their prognosis in terms of risk of further problems. And in somebody who's had an intracerebral hemorrhage, this is, a, as you know, it's a devastating type of stroke. Mortality is still very high, 40% or up to 40% at about one month. And survivors are often very, very concerned about their risk of having another intracerebral hemorrhage, naturally. So w- one of the first uh, questions is, what's my prognosis? And what can I do to reduce that risk of a future intracerebral hemorrhage? And of course, there's also potentially an increased risk of other types of stroke, including ischemic stroke. So in somebody with a, with a brain hemorrhage due to CAA, what, one of the clearest findings is that there seems to be an increased risk of further brain hemorrhage if the blood pressure is not well controlled. So some of this data comes from randomized controlled trials, and some of it comes from observational pooled analyses. And if we look, for example, at one of the big blood pressure trials after stroke, uh, the PROGRESS trial, this actually showed a very dramatic reduction in the risk of future brain hemorrhage in patients who had uh, intracerebral hemorrhage as their qualifying event. And there was a particularly large reduction in those with probable CAA, although mainly that was diagnosed on CT scan. And we're looking at a sort of 50% plus relative risk reduction, although we should bear in mind that the numbers of patients with hemorrhage in these trials was relatively small and the number of events was quite small. But it looks as though there, there is a, a, a large relative risk reduction if we can control the blood pressure well. So that's one of the mainstays of treatment is advising on blood pressure control. The exact level of blood pressure that's needed, how we can improve adherence remains to be uh, determined. And I think trials of improving adherence to blood pressure control are going to be very important uh, in this area because probably keeping the blood pressure stable, uh, reducing variation over time in the long term uh, is is likely to be very important in reducing the long-term hemorrhage risk. So that's one consideration. And the other thing is we would ordinarily, somebody with CAA, we would advise them to avoid antithrombotic drugs if possible because of the uh, theoretical and also data-based evidence that uh, giving these drugs could increase the risk of further intracerebral hemorrhage. And probably the the most difficult situation comes when somebody has a diagnosis of CAA-related cerebral hemorrhage, but they've also got a really strong indication for anti-thrombotic therapy, such as anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. And indeed, they might have had their cerebral hemorrhage while they were taking uh, anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation. So this represents a huge concern for patients, physicians and carers. And we don't have much data to guide us on this. People with CAA, as I suggested, have, and they've had a brain hemorrhage, they've got quite a high risk of 
recurrent interest variable hemorrhage, which is probably somewhere between 5 and 10% per year. And this is likely to be aggravated by exposure to anticoagulant drugs for atrial fibrillation. So the sort of expert consensus advice and uh, our practice is generally to try to avoid anticoagulants after CAE-related intracerebral hemorrhage, particularly vitamin K antagonists, which have the highest risk of intracerebral hemorrhage in comparison to non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants. So in these patients, the decisions are quite difficult because they've also got an ischemic stroke risk, which can be you know, a, quite high, between, also between 5 and 10% per year. So at the moment, as I said, the consensus is to avoid uh, anticoagulation if you can in people with CAA, and we are referring people for left atrial appendage occlusion for their uh, atrial fibrillation, which we know is, uh, seems to be a similar efficacy to vitamin K antagonists and doesn't require long-term anticoagulation. But there is a need for better observational data and also randomized controlled trials in this field, which are ongoing. Absolutely. It sounds like a sort of very challenging field, and particularly with a aging population where you are faced, you know, as the clinician, patient and the carer with a range of comorbidities and, and, and the way in which you, you handle those, I suppose, seems like a major challenge. Uh, yeah, it is a challenge. Um, but I think it's an opportunity as well, because now that we recognize CAA better, we, we, we are diagnosing it more frequently. I think it opens the way for more personalized treatment of people. So if, if we took that example of someone who's had a cerebral hemorrhage and yet they have an indication for uh, anticoagulation, such as atrial fibrillation, this is an opportunity for us to personalize their treatment according to their estimated risks and benefits of the treatment. But of course, we need, we need more data to guide us on that. Absolutely. So if, um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about your work today. I really appreciate it. That's a great pleasure, Elizabeth. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. So that was Professor David Waring from the um, UCL Institute of Neurology in Queen Square, London. He's talking about his and fellow authors' paper in the JNMP, which you can, of course, download for free from jnmp.bmj.com. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>